Engineer. Hey everyone, welcome to the Hedgeneering Podcast, where we discuss the technology used in hedge funds, finance, prop trading shops, and interview the engineers that are building it. I'm your host, Michael Watson, and this is a subject that I've been passionate about for a long time. I worked at uh, a big hedge fund called Citadel for seven years, where I ran all of the data engineering that's used for uh, trading, trying to understand what's going on in equity markets, whether it's anything from a satellite image to a web script. Then ran the enterprise data team for Citadel Securities and Citadel the Hedge Fund, where essentially all the metadata that's used for trading. So every instrument, you have to know what's its ISIN, what's its seed all, what are the exchanges that it can trade on, what's the minimum tick size if you're going to put a, a buy and a sell spread on. Um, and then lastly, ran all of the equities engineering for the fundamental strategies, which is everything from the research technology and NLP on transcripts, being able to really understand what's going on within the fundamental performance of equities to how we think about risk models with CAPM models, be able to uh, disintermediate residual returns or factor returns and be able to explain if a stock goes up or down in a given day, why? And use that as part of the way that you would manage risk. And a couple other things in between. So this is a stuff that I've been passionate about for a long time. And the technology that's used behind the scenes to build all this stuff is actually really incredible. After being in the space for a while, I eventually left to build out my own startup where it took two things that I was really passionate about, both the world of finance and how you think about investing and risk management in, in blockchain and how you can create a decentralized protocol to be able to allow investors to manage risk and um, interfaces for investors to be able to just trade on their ideas. And we'll, we'll go over that later, but I also wanted to build out a place for me to create a channel to, to share all this passion with um, you and the audience. So that's why I created out the Hedgeneering podcast. Um, be pushing out episodes, try to shoot for every week, bring on some like the smartest, most interesting people I know from the engineering side in the space. Uh, to share a little bit about their background, their experiences with you, and hopefully create a bit of a community around others that are interesting on hedge funds, prop trading shops, um, and the engineering shop, or the engineers, uh, and the technology that's used behind the scenes. So pushing out more content and ideas around engineering and hedge funds, hence the Hedgeneering Podcast. So with that, I uh, have our first guest, a very close friend of mine, Brian Malstead. And he's had an awesome uh, career path. And I think is probably the only person that's worked at both SpaceX and Citadel. Super excited to get a little bit of his thoughts on technology, on engineering, engineering management. How would you compare working in a place like SpaceX to Citadel and go from there? So with that said, Brian, uh, look, can you give us a quick uh, background on yourself? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I don't know if I've ever heard you lay out your whole career in a single go like that. So I'll see if I can follow that up. That was amazing. Uh, but yeah, really excited to be here on the Hedgeneer podcast. I uh, was born and raised in California, did undergrad and grad in the Bay. Uh, and then I went down to LA to work for SpaceX for nearly a decade. And then I decided to pivot from SpaceX in LA all the way out to New York to do finance. And so I think that's what brought me into your world working at Citadel, where we collabed together for a little bit. Hence my presence here on this show, where we combine more of the finance and the software sides of things. But I think my career started because, you know, I didn't grow up wanting to do the stereotypical space things. I didn't look up at the stars and had this little twinkle in my eye like I knew a lot of other children did. Um, I mostly just wanted to tackle the toughest problems that were in front of me. 
And I think software was one of the easiest ways to manifest that because you can really take software in any direction you want to across any different industry. And when I finished up at Stanford, I'd, I'd had my, my master's degree and I went down. I said, what's the toughest problem I could solve? And it was getting humanity to Mars. And that was what SpaceX was working on at the time. So that's what I decided to spend my time doing. Uh, I did that for nearly a decade. Loved it. It was an amazing place to work. Did a lot of cool things while I was there. I primarily was responsible for the software that backed both the test programs as well as more the automation and the tooling sides of things. So everything that Dragon the spacecraft has to do when it phases up and birds with the space station or that Falcon has to do to carry Dragon or another payload up to space has to work for months on end on ground before it works out in space. And so the software to be able to test and exercise all that so that at T minus zero, when the clock finally hits, you know that everything's going to work seamlessly. But I found, and I think this is true, and it's something that most of the audience can probably resonate with, is that once you've been working on something for a long time, maybe the first few chapters, it feels like you're drinking from the fire hose and you're absorbing new information left and right. But I think it's really healthy to get uncomfortable and try something new. And so I felt myself not necessarily start to stagnate at SpaceX, but the rate of learning, which is critical for anybody, be it software engineering, finance, or across the other disciplines, I think it's really important to sustain that throughout your career. And so as that rate started to slow, I, I looked laterally. So I moved internally within SpaceX to try a few different capacities and a few different teams, but then ultimately found that the biggest leap I could do in getting back to that rate of learning that I feel is the healthiest for that point in my career was to switch industries. And so I pivoted all the way from aerospace over to finance again due to the fungibility of the software underpinnings beneath that because I could take that into really any discipline that I wanted. So popped all the way over to the East Coast, the capital of finance in the world, New York City, and uh, joined you at Citadel and had an absolute blast there. We can deep dive more about the details there, but I think that was, that was the reason why my career has followed this trajectory. I think it's the chasing of the optimized learning rate, making sure that that's as, as much as possible. And then the last piece that I'll tack onto that too is that when I was a software engineer at SpaceX, imagine there are a few thousand engineers across different disciplines within that aerospace industry. There's the software contingent, which was truly only about a hundred of us. But then there's the guidance, navigation, and control engineers, the dynamics engineers, aero, structures, propulsion engineers, even people who have their PhDs in materials science. And so for me, being in a small corner of the engineering disciplines building what I thought was the coolest piece of it, the software that flew it on the flight computers, I think being in this sea of multidisciplinary engineers was really helpful to learn from masters of different places. But I think what I really liked about the transition to finance was it was a, a reduction in the discipline set for what I was practicing at the time. I remember, you know, if I'm writing a program to control let's say, you know, Falcon 9 to recover the stage when it's coming back down from space after it's deployed its payload and it's an inverted pendulum re-entering our atmosphere. I can write a little bit of code to say, here's how I think the thruster should vector its control so that it does that with stability. But then there are so many, you know, turbulent flow effects, things that have to do with the materials and the densities of the gases in the atmosphere that I, as a software engineer in my skill set, knowing well, have no idea about. And that was really uncomfortable for me because it felt like it was just a misalignment in the skill sets. Whereas I wanted to move to an industry that is, is purely numbers and I felt like I could grasp using the skills that I had built through my career, something that was under my control. The purview of my skill set was something that was directly applicable to the practice of what I was doing industry-wise. 
And so I think one of the best industries to do that in was finance, where it's just, it's bounded numbers and you can write software to do what you want in a much more deterministic fashion than I think a place like a place like SpaceX or a place that is trying to succeed in, in the realm of aerospace, which is so multidisciplinary. Totally. And, and kind of building on that, where you can only understand so much of the world around you when you're writing software, like there's complexities when you're sending something into space that needs somebody to understand the thermal dynamics, the different effects of gravity, different like heat transfers and the material science between everything that's going on. Like there's no way that you can be able to grok all of that, but you can help automate it. Um, I, I personally found there's a lot of similarities when it comes to putting engineers within finance, where like you might have a trader that understands the idiosyncrasies of their market really well. They know the valuation metrics, but translating that into code is a hard thing to do because they can't necessarily also be an incredible software engineer. So having an engineer that has the, like the core concepts of being able to release great code, understand optimizations, and pairing them with a expert in a given field and have both people be interested in the other person's work is where magic happens. And I think some firms do that really well by being able to pair a like domain expertise with a software engineer that's hungry and actually interested in that domain. Um, and a lot of other people are just starting to build that up. Uh, what was it, I guess, about you that made you like interested in the finance part? Because there's obviously you write code, you build stuff out, but there's that's an, oftentimes a means to an end. Uh, have you always had like some kind of interest in finance or interested within uh, capital markets or investing? Absolutely. But I would say that throughout my, I would say first 30 years of life, it was purely on the asset management. I would never do this when I was 10, of course, but through the later years of my life, it was asset management. I think once I got to a certain threshold of software development, it was like in the Wizard of Oz, I could peel back that curtain and kind of see the software backends that drove the financial system in the United States. And having the ability to write something that interfaces with that and even read something that is currently a, a foundation of how it works is, is, is a really fascinating place to practice for your career. And so getting a little bit of, of a tease with that, just tasting it from my asset management experience, and then combining that with the career in software development to go back and say, hey, I can really pull back this curtain, sit down at my keyboard and work on something that is just as critical to the, the engine that we call our financial system was a really... Um, I would say liberating realization. And then of course, you know, it's just a drop in the ocean. Once you peel back that curtain further, it's just, you know, the more you realize you don't know uh, and it's, and it's a wonderful journey through that ocean. Totally. Um, let's actually take it back to when you made the transition from SpaceX into finance, working at Citadel, looking back on it from where you're at right now, how would you compare the two organizations? What's similar? What's different? I would say there's more similarity than difference. I think we can answer this question in a number of different ways. So I think on the cultural front to start, I think they both instill a really strong culture of moving as, as quickly as possible. It's mm -hmm. all about speed. But where I think one difference lies in that realm is it's it's not just, you know, top tier talent putting their their foot to the the metal and they're hitting the gas as hard as they can and the NOS is on and they're going as quickly as possible. But it's it's a management of risk throughout that process. In your intro, you mentioned quite a bit of how how critical risk is in this industry in particular. And I think when you're doing software development in either of those two, we'll call them Ferraris, they're both very well-oiled machines as industry representatives, there's a different approach to how you develop your quality versus the risk aside from that. Um, SpaceX obviously has the potential to uh, have human lives on the line when it's launching a crewed vehicle. And that's a piece that you have to consider when writing software. But I think 
it's less about that there are lives on the line with SpaceX than there are not lives on the line for Citadel. I think it's more about the binary date or finish line of the of the software that you're delivering. And so when I'm writing a piece of code that I know is potentially going to fly on Falcon, something like this, three months in the future, I know I have T minus three months. And then once that date of T minus zero hits, I'm either going to go or I'm not going to go. It's 100% or it's zero. And so my entire software development process to get to that T minus zero moment is to make sure that we're 100% ready. And if the software that I'm planning to write or the software that I'm interfacing with is not 100% ready, we're going to delay because it has to work right. It's a very binary moment in time where the finish line represents everything, all or nothing. But it, it's it's interesting how you're saying it is a it's risk management mm -hmm. in a conscious decision on speed versus uh, accuracy. And there's always there's going to be a trade off. Um, but the concept of this binary moment it all leads up to this T zero when you literally count down from ten has got to be incredibly exhilarating. There's got to be almost nothing else like it. What was that like actually working for months on end, grinding with your peers to then see one of the largest explosions that's probably happening within a, I don't know, 10,000 mile radius or like on the planet at that point in time, sh shooting something up into space. It's an incredible feeling. It's the short line. I think everyone's career fulfills them in different ways. And I think part of the reason why we choose different careers is for the different flavors of fulfillment that they provide. But I think within SpaceX and within the aerospace industry in general, it's not a bug you're necessarily squashing or a small corner that you're trying to solve or a little problem that needs a bit of resolution. The end game is getting a vehicle, effectively a skyscraper, up to space to either perform an action or deliver some material, do some event up in space. And so I would say when that is the magnitude of the finish line instead of the squashing of a minor bug or something else, it just takes that same prideful feeling that people can hear about and totally understand and empathize with and multiplies it by a factor of 100. It, it's, such a, it's such a moment because you have the aggregation of all of the nights that you spent struggling during those T minus three months to try to figure out something mixed with the explicit path of this is something that needs to work three months from now, so I'm going to stay up all night right now making sure it works. That repeated for 90 days straight until a launch date means that the sense of pride that you have at T minus zero is met with incredible satisfaction. But it also means that the risk of something going wrong, because again, we're in a binary success fail world in aerospace. And so if the tiniest thing is wrong, the whole mission has failed. If the rocket explodes, if something goes wrong on re-entry or launch, ascent, phasing with the space station, anything else, then it's a very scary moment too. And so I would say that the pride you feel when everything does go correct is the same as the anxiety you feel in the moments leading up to it is the same as the disappointment and, and, and even anger or sadness or something else that you might feel when something goes wrong. So all that's mixed up, but I think this is the same as every industry. It's a sense of pride, failure, success, something being laid, blah, 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 blah. But I think in the aerospace industry in particular, because it's such a visible, tangible, deliverable, you feel it a lot more. It's a laundromat to do. Totally. And I, I would envision that in these types of organizations, the level of intensity is just notched up to 11 sometimes. And it can cause you to feel these peaks and valleys of emotions. But as a professional, you want to just be able to keep a steady hand. And now that you've gone through your career, a couple different cycles, how do you remain balanced in those types of environments so that one, you're stable for yourself, you're stable for your friends and family. So you don't, they'll feel your anxiety. You don't necessarily want to bring that home, 
But also if you're, you're managing teams, you're running large organizations, they want to be able to look at you and feel secure, safe, like we have this under control amongst all the chaos around us. Now, how do you think about kind of managing those peaks and valleys as a professional in such an intense environment? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's hard is the answer. I think it becomes easier throughout your career is my particular answer. In the beginning, those failures, they wreck you. You make a mistake, even if it was something explicitly your fault, you make a mistake that yields a poor outcome, that's on you. But I think what I've learned, and this is true of any industry, is that, you know, you hear this quote, the road to success is, is littered with failures or whatever the, mm -hmm, the exact mm -hmm. words are. I think the more and more that you screw up, the more you cover the state space of things that you can screw up. And the more you paint that picture of how to navigate to success. And so I think throughout throughout my my 20s and early 30s, I think I just, I built up credentials and a list of things that I had done wrong. And that's what made me successful. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. It's, it's almost akin to, um, you know, the person that you know screwed up last time is the person who you want handling that task this time because they know exactly how it went wrong and they know exactly how to fix it next time. I think the application of that to yourself throughout your career mistakes allows you to cordon off places where you might feel stress and pass that off to your family members or friends or even feel anxiety about repeating an action and making the same mistake again in your own career environment. But the more and more that you screw up, the more and more you can, with retrospect, look at the path you've walked and figure out how to how to section off those areas that need to be sectioned off so you can be efficient and focused. And when faced with a similar adversity again, know how to approach it. Totally. And I think there's also a skill in being able to fail gracefully because there's some, some things that you can go out there and try to attempt to do that are absolutely critical, have to get done. And you might take on more risk by being able to solve it for every possible solution. And you realize that you're, you can sometimes get distracted. Um, and being able to fail in a way that it doesn't close doors. Because uh, there are some failures that you can make career-ending decisions. Now, they're not often, but being able to fail gracefully so that you can learn from it and move on to the next problem, uh, I think is uh, allows a lot of people and myself to be able to fail in a graceful way that I fall forward. Um, but let's, let's actually go back to some of your experience um, uh, working within these two organizations, SpaceX, Citadel, like I said earlier, top of the class. They also have two incredibly talented, passionate, um, sometimes controversial leaders at the top with KG at Citadel, Elon at Tesla. Um, they both have like very aggressive and, and have built these incredible organizations. Do you find similarities between the two? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they've both had men in the news a lot lately, and it's been interesting to watch. But they are, you know, not knowing them personally very intimately, but in the corporate context, I can certainly answer that question. And I would say more similarities than differences from the corporate approach. I think the one thing that stands out for me that they both have is the not just ability to micromanagement, micromanage, but almost the the desire to. And I that that manifests itself in a lot of different ways, but I think the most common is that they engage themselves in low-level conversations that have critical decision outputs. So instead of saying, okay, you are that you know PhD of material science engineering that we discussed earlier, you pick the material for the heat shield and call it a day, they'll be able to go into that scope of what the inputs are to the output of that decision 
and navigate that map in a way that very few other people can unless they have that low-level expertise. And I'll say that another way. I think every sort of meeting or email or, or discourse in a corporate environment is to really conclude something, output a decision, do something, provide something. And I think all of the inputs to that decision-making process are the voices in the room, uh, the recency bias and things that are happening in the company, you know, specific pieces of infrastructure in the software stack, whatever it may be, you're mapping all those inputs to make a decision, a single output, right? And so you typically add as inputs the people that are best at navigating all those inputs to create that output. And where I think Elon and Ken really thrive is they can be that expert to map those inputs to outputs in ways that they shouldn't. They're not PhDs in every single, you know, all the different multidisciplinary engineering pieces that I mentioned at SpaceX. And there's so many different ways you can take a financial conversation and can, can partake in all of those. But where they really thrive is their ability to do that at a low level. And I would say from the outside, take the average person, put them as a CEO of a company, and then force them to micromanage at the low level. I think that the complaint against that as inefficient is a valid one for a lot of people. But I think where Ken and Elon thrive is they aren't inefficient in those spaces. They're able to recognize which of the inputs are important, which should be weighted, and in what order, and make a decision based off of that information. And it's something that bleeds, and this is a really key point, not into the culture of the company per se, because they're the masthead. Everything that they do trickles down. But I think while they instill in the the rest of their their employee bases the ability to be efficient, the ability to not waste time, the ability to dictate what's important, what's not important, focus on what is important. They can say all those things matter, but when put into practice, not everyone can replicate that, right? And I think that's why there aren't 2,000 CEOs at each of these companies. It's why they are the mastheads that they are is because they have a very unique ability with that surgical blade to find the things that matter, cut away everything else and produce the output. Total. And, and I think they feel the problems that they're trying to solve in their bones. And when you have a conversation with somebody like that, it can become so intense so quickly. And you can just feel that they care so much that they're willing to go down to the level of what is the Linux distro that we want to use? And why is that the best Linux distro that we can have? in order for us to ultimately get the best risk-adjusted returns for our investors. And connecting those dots, like you could try right now if, if somebody's at home, just figure out like, eh, why like uh, Alpine or Debian or Ubuntu might be the best distro. But being able to like take that one step higher for what are the application, what's the development process going to look like? What's the CICD pipeline going to look like? What is the applications we're going to build on that? What is their functionality for us to manage risk, drive returns or drive operational efficiencies? And then how is that going to be executed within the organization? There's so many different layers when you get that low to have actual value be produced from it. And somebody that has the feeling in their bones that they want to be able to help make that entire supply chain as effective as possible and no better than anybody else in the industry, what the end game needs to look like uh, is just incredibly special. And not many organizations are going to be lucky enough to be able to have somebody that feels that level of passion with expertise. Um, but if you got it, put them in the driver's seat, go 90 miles an hour and build some of the greatest companies that the world's ever known. Um, so how do you then take that experience to awesome companies 
come up with your own philosophy. Like how do you, how do you manage teams? Cause you're now starting to go into your own entrepreneurial uh, endeavors. Um, how do you take away from those experience, come up with your own management philosophy and, and use that to be able to build out your own next great company? Yeah, it's another great question. I, I think to piggyback off of what you were seeing at the end there, feeling it in your bones, it's really that passion. And it's not passion that, you know, lights a fire under your butt so you stay up all night. Sometimes it presents as that. But I think what that passion really allows you to do is interpreting what you're saying. And I, I totally agree with it. It's really form a picture in your mind of what the finish line looks like without all the fluff. Because I think if you don't have passion for a specific vertical or if you don't have passion for a specific product that you're aiming for, you get distracted. We live in a very stimulating world with a lot of different angles and directions that are coming in and directions that you could take certain things out. So I think being able to slice through all that and, and focus really on what the core, the heart of what you're trying to achieve is, is critical. Both of those gentlemen do that. And I think that's something that I certainly carry into my projected success in, in all of my entrepreneurial ventures, as well as even the teams that I, that I worked with within Citadel and SpaceX. It was the same sort of push. I think that if you're able to, to run a, I would say, <clears throat> a small duty cycle in the back of your mind to ask yourself, is the task that I'm doing right now critical towards what I ultimately want to achieve with this project? And you can't distill that down into a sentence or two, then you're working on something that doesn't need to be worked on. Because it's so easy through the course of meetings, questions, slacks, emails. The day is filled with shiny things to look at. And I think some of those you control, some of those you don't. But if you're able to cut through that and focus on truly what the end goal of this one-week sprint, two-week sprint, three-month-long quarter deliverable is, and then ask yourself at repetitive checkpoints along that path, is everything that I'm doing focusing on that, that end and achieving that end in the best way possible, then that's something that is going to yield a lot of success. Love that. Love that. What is something that is worthy of all of my time, energy, and passion that if I can get to this point, it makes it all worthwhile and I will be proud of that future version of myself based off of those accomplishments. Now is the time to be setting like those types of goals. Have you gone through any like goal setting for this year and, and how do you approach that? Yeah, I like to do, going back to software, we use some semantic versioning for major version, minor version, and patch version. I like to do you know, my, my semantic major version every year or so. It's like, what are the big things that I want to achieve this year? The minor would be okay of a check-in every month or so to make sure that like on the path to achieve that major version this year, am I doing the checkpoints that are necessary to get there? And the patches are the day-to-day the -day micro decisions. But I, I've always found that, you know, that's a simple process. It's no cure for cancer. It's not going to be shocking news to anybody. It's a simple approach to the way things do. But in terms of what those goals should be, is a very unique subjective process that I think every individual should sit within. I think everyone has a different philosophy about that. I'd like to hear yours as well. But for mine, it's what good does it do to the world? Not just me, but the world. Is it something that I'm skilled enough to achieve? And is it something that is hard enough just out of my reach? So you for that what that one in order again, it's, you know, it has to provide some benefit. So am I working on something that's gonna you know, help me tie my shoes faster in the morning. Probably not the greatest thing to do on planet Earth, but is it going to truly improve the quality of people's lives, uh, be it through stability in the financial markets or be it through the ability to make, you know, species interplanetary? It has to check off that box. And then the second one really comes down to passion. 
Is it something that you are, are good enough at to stay motivated enough at to do? And then the third is, I think it's the reach that is necessary for us all to like stay with a fire underneath us. It's if it's something that you could do in your sleep, if it's something that you can recognize like the back of your hand, if it's something that you can do with great familiarity, then it's not something that's really going to, there are some exceptions to this, but it's not going to be transformative. It's not going to innovate the world. It's not going to do anything else. Always try to chase that carrot that's just a little bit further out of your current comfort zone. Going back to the previous comments about the health of, of being uncomfortable, um, that reach is really important. So that's my approach for determining what my goal should be for that year. And I've followed that throughout the different steps of my career. So with that said, like you're in 2023, you're working on your new project, um, trying to solve some of the liquidity problems for early stage employees that you probably experienced when you were at SpaceX getting equity. Interesting type of problem. Do you want to like talk about it a little bit? Yeah, yeah. We can briefly go over that, especially as a tie back to SpaceX, because you hit the nail on the head. It was a problem that I had. You know, I finished grad school. I signed with SpaceX. Uh, there's an amount of the compensation package that comes to you in, in, in equity, right? You get shares in a private company when you sign on for a lot of these private tech companies. Um, that is a, a supplement to, you know, the rest of your purse as, as far as salary goes. And I remember receiving that, but not being able to tap into it. And so I would go banks and I'd, I'd, um, you know, try to get a mortgage because I wanted to buy a house in LA. And I would, I would take the papers and say, like, look, I, I have this, the, num the number's right there. I want to buy a house. And they're like, no, it's, it's illiquid. You can't use that to purchase this home. And so I, I started with the frustration of those responses. And then I, I mold on it for 10 years and started, um, you know, raising capital in other ways and, and working at a, a few different places. But I think ultimately it came down to how do you extract some of the liquidity from an illiquid asset like private equity? And so working on providing solutions to the same problems that I had more than a decade ago to the next generation of folks, it doesn't have to be in the private tech sector. It's really across all private equity, but the ability to collateralize that uh, and borrow against it or sell when the opportunity provides. And not just to the person who is borrowing, not just to the shareholder that is pledging the private equity, but a seamless program for the issuer, the actual, um, the the issuer of the stock to to take advantage of and both take shortcuts in the efficiency of management of that type of liquidity, as well as uh, the impacts that it would have to other facilities that they may already have in place, like tender offers, um, valuations and the filings of, of different forms. And um, so I'm really excited. It's something that, again, I would have liked to have exist a number of years ago. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm excited to be able to provide that opportunity to the next wave. Love that. And I'm sure you're going to be able to share more about that as, uh, as it progresses. But awesome problem. Super excited about to see where that goes. Um, one of the things that you said, like a couple like a couple buzzwords that people talk about a little bit in the DeFi space and the crypto world is, and it's not a crypto project. I wasn't trying to insinuate that, but collateralization, mm -hmm. um, uh, different protocols that can provide liquidity um, that has really exploded within the, the decentralized landscape. And you spent a little bit of time doing blockchain DeFi work um, after you left. Can you walk me through a little bit about where your journey was in the DeFi space? Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's a it's an amazing industry. I'd love, I mean, it, it can be branded in so many different ways. We could take this conversation in a bunch of different directions. I'm sure future episodes will have to deep dive a number of these different angles. But crypto in at least in the DeFi realms is not just the reinvention of things that have been discovered already in traditional finance, but it is a lot of re-implementations of those on a clean slate that would have taken a lot longer to get through the cruft of if you reinvented those in the fiat way. 
And so I've been managing my cryptocurrency portfolio for a while without doing any Web3 development. I've had a number of years of that and I've always enjoyed it. It's, it's a value store that you can use to pay on rails that is seamless. It's, it's a wonderful ability for us to tap into things like foreign exchanges and, and, and moving money around in an almost instantaneous way. So all of those stereotypical benefits are fantastic. But then dipping into the Web3 side of things and doing actual software development in that space, it was, it was a pretty interesting process. It's the same thing that we had been previously discussing. It's, it's the realization that what consensus over a blockchain is, is truly a distributed lock in a database. It's something that has existed in database technology for a long time. But I don't think the average person needs a database lock. The average person needs a lock on something like a bank withdrawal or a payment to another person that is critical for rent or for what have you. And so I think what blockchain really has done, and again, I, I learned this through the first few developments I've done in Web3, is that it's taken something as simple as a distributed lock that databases have had for a very long time. And it's really brought it to a generally applicable scale so that the average person understands the value. So you have this transactive guarantee that something is going to happen and it's going to be verifiable and verified by every other node on the planet in the same way that databases do right now when you're replicating, you know, across a Mongo cluster or something. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really nice, it's a really nice bringing home back to a point of familiarity for why something like this exists. I, I love that. And I love starting to do the comparisons with databases where I look at L1s like Solana and they are trying to optimize the proliferation of a verified transaction across many different nodes in a network in order to optimize the, the time to finality. And you see the same thing in a highly available database cluster where you have multiple different nodes, you maybe have a single master and you need to be able to have a resilient system. So if that master goes down, you're gonna have no lost transactions and another master can stand up. And one of the bottlenecks that will happen is that if I have a hundred different nodes in even a traditional database, I need to replicate each one of those transactions across the cluster. And those are problems that uh, HA, high availability databases have been trying to solve for a while. And that's now an area of optimization that you see within a lot of the um, dedicated app-specific change within the Cosmos. With You see Say talking about that, DYDX. Antonio is going to bring up, like, what is their optimization within the propagation of a transaction within that network? And it's the same thing when you have, like, a, a highly available decentralized um, database. Um, so a lot of those worlds from the technology side are starting to converge and talking about blockchains for the context that makes sense as though they are databases about for specifically for L1s is um, an area where I think doesn't get a lot of recognition and in, in discussion on it. Uh, but I see that that's where at least the people that are really deep in the weeds are starting to connect the dots there that have been there the whole time, but it's been in more of the technology side and the, the hype has gotten um, most of the attention. I was just going to say uh, on, on a response to what you previously said too, that cross-pollination is really important. I think that it's, it's a very easy knee-jerk reaction to, if you've been trading commodities for 45 years, it's kind of easy to, not stick your nose in the air, but look at something like a DeFi marketplace or a decentralized exchange and, and uh, not scoff at it, but just regard it in a different way that you would if it was another product in the fiat space that you know and love. And the same applies to these database experts and the cross-pollination across these two worlds where the recognition of this new chance to build a technology in a slightly different implementation that is going to be able to provide the rails for global transactions across many different value stores. 
and taking the expertise of the system in which it's already been implemented, like databases, and using those to build the future together instead of the knee-jerk reaction of either scoffing at one another or pretending like your expertise should be isolated, that merging and that converging is, is a critical piece that everyone should be actively trying to do, no matter which side of the fence their expertise lies. Totally. When you were saying earlier about getting to see the insides of the way the financial system works by working at one of these well-known large organizations. When you start working, in my experience, within the DeFi and crypto space, there is no toll gate in order to see what's going on underneath the hood. It's all very open. If you want to see all the transactions that are happening uh, against Uniswap, just be able to spin up a archive node within Ethereum or any of the uh, other chains and you can see every transaction that's ever happened you want to submit your own transaction directly to that exchange you can do so and being able to take back all of the barriers of entry that exist within current financial systems as a technologist is incredibly like it's freeing it's empowering it's like oh i can suddenly write my own options contract with any counterparty and not have to ask somebody for permission. Now we are coming into a world where like the regulatory regimes of this space are making a much larger uh, opinion about what you can and can't do. But from the technology side, there are no inherent limitations. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's just been incredibly freeing is like a, a developer that can transition existing software engineering skills from, financial markets or pretty much any topic and apply them directly by creating some of these decentralized exchanges, protocols, interactions has been, it's, it's been very freeing and eye-opening. Last night when we were chatting about what we were going to go over today and I asked you, are there any memorable stories from a launch at SpaceX? And you told me the story about the coffee shaking. I was like, dude, that is insane. Do you want to like share that with the listeners? Because I thought it was awesome. Yeah. I, I think it's a, a cool just indication of purpose. I, I remember having this, I'll tell you the experience and I'll tell you what I took away from it, but I'm, I'm a coffee guy and like to enjoy my coffee, especially after I have a big lunch or something, give me a boost for the afternoon. So typically at around one or two o'clock, I'll go grab an afternoon cup of coffee. And I was not just working at the headquarters SpaceX in Hawthorne, California, but I was at McGregor, Texas at the test site for a number of stints out there. And so one day I was about to go for my afternoon cup of coffee. I was feeling a little bit lethargic. So I was going for a pick me up, needed some stimulation. And while the test site does see regular tests, they're usually a single M1D, a single Falcon 9 engine that is testing a specific change in, in, on the software or hardware side, some, some A-B test of a small component so that we know how it performs. Every now and then, instead of multiple times a day like the M1D tests, you're not testing a single Merlin engine, but you're testing an entire stage. And so we have a different test site for this. It's a little bit further away from where our desks are. We're talking you know, thousands of feet. But you have an entire stage, so getting back to that skyscraper that I was describing before, and then nine Merlin engines in a grid at the bottom instead of just a single Merlin engine test. And when the stage tests happen, you know. And I remember because I was going to go grab my cup of coffee, I was going for the added juice that I needed to boost me through the rest of the afternoon. And I remember thinking my eyes were vibrating, but I was staring at my monitor and I saw the screen start to shake a little bit. And then I noticed the coffee cup because I was subconsciously focused on that. And I was about to go grab some. I noticed that started to shake on its coaster, which made that rattling noise. And then my whole desk just started shaking as I realized there was a planned full stage test outside that I didn't know. So I, I sprinted outside 
And as I remember leaving the desk and scurrying away and the whole thing shaking and the hair on the back of my neck standing up and the goosebumps just electrifying up and down my arms, I remember thinking to myself, why am I grabbing a cup of coffee compared to this mission for what would this stage test represents in the process to get humanity to other planets and all the crazy, crazy chapters to read along the way to that path? Why did I need the stimulation of a cup of coffee when I'm working on something so electrifying physically and mentally? And the desk shaking will always be burned in my memory as, as something that is inspiring, but just it, it signifies to me the purpose of what I was working on and how that just translated into such a physical motivation of my body. Love that. Starbucks needs to figure out how they can put that in espresso <laughs> shot. I'll have two of those. Exactly. You had mentioned that at Citadel, you've had a number of stories that were similar where you felt the electricity of either the conclusion of a project or the achievement of a task that was particular to the the kind of synergistic effects of all different engineers, analysts, investment professionals coming together and achieving something. And I think that while Citadel doesn't launch rockets, it does just as impactful and challenging problems that are resolved in its own accord. And maybe you could share one or two that you've experienced through your time there. Uh, sure. Without going too much into, into details, um, but one of the things that you have within finance and trading is that you have a specific view of the world. And oftentimes it maybe differs from what everyone else is seeing. And there's a sense of satisfaction when you're proven right irrefutably by the market reaction in a way that you had predicted. And that sense of accomplishment of being able to be proven right when you were maybe swimming upstream, disagreeing what the rest of the world was saying, you had conviction within yourself, within your team, and you're all collectively taking your separate skill sets together to come up with this differentiated view is very like, it, it's, it's an awesome feeling. So you'll put like a data engineer, a data scientist, an investment professional, all trying to use some piece of information and reconstruct it in a way that it answers a question that no one else has been able to answer yet. And having the opportunity with a, a given catalyst within the market to validate that actually you were right. You saw something that nobody else did. And when you get those wins, it's it's a rush. Now, you're not shooting a skyscraper into Mars, but you are making a, a oftentimes a very large trade. A lot of money is then responding to it. And you're making that um, trade on behalf of your LPs, which oftentimes are hospitals, museums, yep. um, nonprofits. Sovereign wealth funds, and it could be the pension fund for somebody that my mom might have retired for before. And so um, knowing that like you did have an idea that no one else, at least outside of your team, really saw and being able to validate that, yeah, you were right the whole time. And then having that benefit to other people that are trying to do great things around the world. Uh, that's real. And I love the rush when that happens. It doesn't always happen, but when it does, you got to cherish it. Totally. So Brian, got to ask, I've been spending a lot of time doing deep dives into diffusion models, LLMs like GPT-3 and coming up with my own thesis on where the space is going in terms of using AI for risk management or trading ideas uh, that I think is going to be incredibly disruptive. I think there's no way around it. Um, 
And we're going to spend another episode just doing a deep dive in that. So we don't need to go too in the weeds right now, but I'm curious from a, curious from a higher level, how do you see that potentially disrupting the space? They're such amazing pieces of technology. I would say that I, I deliberately don't have an explicit answer on tool X, product Y, or conclusion Z that these things will produce. Because I think if we had a bounded problem space where we'd say, all right, now within that boundary, go solve it, chat GPT, go solve it, whatever model XYZ is going to do it, then we wouldn't really need it. Then we're, we're really using that technology for a computational advantage um, and optimization in how quickly we get to a solution, perhaps. Where I think these things thrive is feed it massive, unhuman readable sets of data that we can't process and let it figure out what it needs to conclude and what that conclusion is on its own. So if you start writing a model that takes, I don't know, ticker data, stock data, even a few things that you maybe are, are considering related to something that would cause you either to take a position or remove a position, um, be it, you know, earnings calls, all the obvious things. And you put that into a model and you let a computer robo trade it. Great. It's going to have some result. But now that we're getting into these amazingly expansive models, they can take much larger sets of data and pull conclusions from them as they desired to. Then we could start feeding it things that aren't necessarily human associated to that position output. So you could feed it personal data. What's, what's my Gmail history and my Google Drive and Google Docs history? And how does that impact my own trading schedule? I could feed it the entire public sphere of, um, I don't know, something like weather data and how does that affect stock trading? And so you can start feeding it all these things that you don't necessarily connotate with it. And from that unknown relationship, it will yield a conclusion. That's where I really see. So it's a non-answer in its own answering. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it will figure out what it needs to solve by considering a much larger surface area of data than we can. And, and that's the space that I can't wait to say these technologies stretch their legs within. Totally. And I, I love the different avenues that you could take it on. Like you were saying feed transcript data. And is that, that be a human assisted AI where you put in all cell side research, all internal research, all like publicly available transcripts in order for a machine to be able to synthesize that information for you, be able to find nuanced stories or nuanced historical relationships mm -hmm. um, that mirror common trends right now. I think one of the problems is, is being able to differentiate fact from summarization. And you can't do simple mathematics with just a pure LLM. And figuring out what's the right combination of the two of the things is going to be fascinating. I think in another area that like is going to be interesting is a lot of these models are probabilistic, not deterministic. And from a back testing perspective, you need deterministic models with very accurate point in time data. So how would you have a model trained with point in time data and say, what would the output ha output have been on Jan 1st, 2020? What about December 31st, 2019? and had these point in time checkpoints for backtesting. So you actually can go forward with some level of confidence, you know how it's gonna perform. Um, so general question I wanna ask everybody, can you think of anyone in your career that has made a big impact on you? You're, you're a better person for having worked with them, spent time with them, learned from them. I'm probably most grateful towards my teams. The teams that I've had and the direct reports that I've worked with throughout the years of my career because I think when you're grinding and your knuckles are white and you're sweating and you're bloody and you're tired and you're doing something as an individual contributor 
you have that final output that you're proud of, that same bug squashing pride that we discussed earlier, all of that exists. But when you become not just an independent, but you have dependence underneath you, not in the sense anything besides, you know, the corporate structure, but when you have a team whose outputs you are responsible for in addition to your own, it changes the way that you approach software development. It changes the way that you approach the human side of assembling teams, something that you mentioned earlier and is something that you're very good at. And the communicative abilities to bring a bunch of people together to deliver an output hand in hand is something that is a lot larger than any individual contribution I have had, of course. And so I think the explicit thanks would go towards the direct reports that I've had throughout my career and what they've changed about me and the way that I both contribute my individual pieces as well as in the relationships with them. Love that. Well, I guess let's end it with that. So Brian, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I want to encourage everyone that's listened in or watched the Hedgeneering podcast this week, join the Slack channel. We're going to be having a community of people that are passionate about technology, hedge funds, prop trading, and finance, be able to discuss things that they're working on. So we'll have specific channels for projects, specific channels for ideas, specific channels for career advice or recruiting, and anything else that we can come up with around the topic. Follow us on Instagram at Hedgeneer, TikTok, Hedgeneer, uh, the YouTube channel, Hedgeneer, and tune in to us on both Apple, Spotify, or wherever you want to listen to the audio. And I'm looking forward to sharing this journey with you. Uh, thanks, everyone, and have a great rest of your week. Hedgeneer.